Hello and welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the CEO and founder of Law in Sport. The Law in Sport podcast is here to help you understand the latest legal issues and developments from the world of sport. We also provide you with an opportunity to find out more about the people who are working tirelessly behind the scene to keep sport running and to improve the sector as a whole. Our special guest today is Brent Nowicki. He is the Managing Counsel and Head of the Anti-Doping Division at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And he's also an international lacrosse player and a Law and Sport Advisory Board member. In this interview, Brent provides an opportunity to hear about the newly formed CAS Anti-Doping Division, its structures and procedures, and what it means for sports governing bodies and athletes as a whole. Before we get started, I'd just like to say that if you enjoy the podcast, please do tell people about it. Please do share it on your social media channels. Other than that, whatever time of day it is when you're tuning in, wherever you are in any part of the world, I hope you're all well and safe at this moment in time. And thank you so much for tuning in. Brent, thanks for joining. Thank you, Sean, for having me. It's good to be back. <laughs> um, I really appreciate you taking the time out to, to have this chat today. And I should say that Brent has also uh, been a trusted advisor to Law & Sport for uh, for many years now. So Brent, thank you in advance for all your support for Law & Sport. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to chat with you because we've got this new anti-doping division at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. And I, and I feel that it hasn't received as much coverage, let's say, uh, from us in particular, but also from um, other publications. So I wondered if you could explain, firstly, about your role as managing counsel and the head of the division, and then talk about um, what the, how the division was set up, what the history was, and then we can get into some of the, the, the more nuanced parts of it. Sure. Thanks. Uh, I, I actually, if I could just maybe switch those, maybe I'll sort of walk us through sort of how we got to where we are today. And then I guess maybe weave in at that point, my involvement in the process, which kind of brings us to today, I think maybe easier to, to kind of take us through stepwise and put it in perspective. So um, let's see. So we, we, we date back to just prior to the Rio games when there was this uh, this program being rolled out by the IOC Agenda 2020. And the Agenda 2020 had a whole uh, laundry list of, of initiatives that the IOC and best practices that the IOC uh, was instilling on its membership and the sports community as a whole to, to sort of uh, create sort of a, a betterment of sports uh, at every level, targets, measurements, and one of the, the, the points in Agenda 2020 was this call for uh, the independence for results management, be it collection of samples, testing of samples, uh, and also within that, the adjudication of the positive uh, tests that arose from the samples that were being collected because prior to this time it was virtually uh, the norm that either the federations themselves or through third parties connected with the federation would collect the samples test the samples report the samples and then they would internally adjudicate the sample and it was all quite incestual yeah and we've so seen that being a problem in, in anti-doping over the last, particularly over the last few years. Yeah. 
so with this call out uh, for all these uh, new new measurements to take place there was a request that the CAS act as a independent adjudicatory body for the IOC as it concerned testing of samples or positive samples resulting during the Rio game. So we, we kind of come into existence right around this time and, 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 and there we are born at the Rio games on an ad hoc basis. We are there solely to replace the role of the medical science and games group of the IOC who previously had adjudicate, who adjudicated the positive samples arising out of games. So the IOC was essentially putting its money where its mouth was saying, we're gonna lead the charge on this idea of independent adjudication and we want you, CAST, to set up this anti-doping division or unit which can take these independent decisions for game samples. And that's what we did. Now, we reflected on our work and it was a lot of, I think the, the, the idea of gaining, gaining independence was met, but there was a lot of duplicated work and we found ourselves holding multiple hearings and passing the dossier between the Federation and the IOC and the CAS and it was just kind of muddy. So after the games we reflected a little bit about how we could improve and how we could become more efficient and more independent uh, and provide our services uh, to the other IFs of the games and so when we get to Pyeongchang um, we meet with the IFs and say, look, what we would like to do is we would like to have you delegate to the ADD your responsibilities uh, as they concern games-related results, positive results. So what we would like to do is we, we would get the file from the IOC for purposes of adjudicating the violations arising out of the games but we'd also like you to delegate to us the responsibility to adjudicate the sanctions, the resulting sanctions from the violations. Because what was happening in Rio is that we were assessing a violation of an athlete as it related to the games. Then the athlete was leaving the games, but was essentially free to compete because he or she had not been sanctioned yet by the right. International Federation. Yeah. So a cyclist would effectively be kicked out of the Olympic Games for doping and then would go home and the next week would be on his bike riding in a race because okay. the, the violation, the, the dots weren't being connected and the, viol and the Federation hadn't done its uh, process to, to, to sanction the athlete. <laughs> we were issuing were only so far as good as the games period, so they weren't continual. So we met with the IFs, as I said, and we said, look, we have this gap, this problem. So if you can delegate this responsibility to us, we can ensure that when our panel decides the violation, they can, in essence, decide the sanction as well. Uh, and that sanction will be applicable from the moment that athlete leaves the village um, until the conclusion of his or her uh, sanction. Yeah. And therefore, we can ensure that these athletes who are doping during the games aren't continuing to compete after the games, and probably most efficiently, most importantly, it was the efficiency of the process where uh, we didn't have to, or the IF didn't have to reassemble its own panel uh, and then go through the whole process, see the same evidence, call the same witnesses to hear the same thing again a second time. And you increase the chance of administrative error, right, when that process happens, and we've seen this in 
in other sports cases. If it has to happen multiple times, all the deadlines and so forth, you can see people, you know, uh, not necessarily getting the, the, the same treatment just because of the pure workload or, you know, information is not passed smoothly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it, yeah, it prevents administrative error and it, and it creates a streamlined process for adjudication, which is what adjudication should be. It shouldn't be, yeah. bulky, it shouldn't be a bulky maze to get through. It should be quite, quite straight. So uh, just to pick up, so now we're in Pyeongchang, and uh, in the process, I think, frankly, it goes it goes fairly well. And what what I liked about Pyeongchang was that we we had sort of different test cases in the sense that we had some cases during the games that we decided violation and sanction right in the context of the games. We had some cases where we determined the violation. We prevented the athlete by provisional suspension from competing, but the athlete said, "Wait a second, I need time to." Uh, get my evidence together, my scientists together, and find out where this came from because it impacted the duration of the sanction that he or she may ultimately be be faced with. Um, so we have sort of these split cases where the, the panel keeps jurisdiction, but we suspend the case, yeah. and then we re-engage the case after the games when the athlete has time to to build its defense. Um, so we which saw is which is yeah. yeah, very different different variations where. Um, where the athletes got the opportunity to, let's say, control their destiny, right? They got an opportunity to decide how they wanted this case to be heard, all the while uh, keeping the process as straight as possible. Great. And then, so from Pinjang, am I saying that right? <laughs> um, um, from there, then what happened? So, again, we regrouped after Pyeongchang and I think that there was further discussions with the IAPS where they said, look, this process actually works. It, it alleviates something that we don't necessarily need to be in the business of, which is adjudication. UCAS have the infrastructure, the elements, the arbitrators, the personnel to do this. Why don't we look at doing this on a permanent basis where for 365 days of a year and for all periods outside of the games, CAS can take care of the adjudication aspects of our anti-doping results management requirements. I don't need to get into them here, but as anyone, as everyone probably knows, you know there are certain results management requirements of the World Anti-Doping Code as it concerns the signatories to the code. Yeah, some of those are, and, and, and we'll see a big change in the next iteration of the code, but there is a requirement now that an independent body that's not attached or associated with the IF, and speaking very loosely, yeah. uh, is, is assembled to adjudicate uh, these, these violations. We're, we're now full circle where we were when the IOC was talking about this, uh, this importance of independent adjudication in results management is part of the agenda 2020. So now we're sort of now we're there, uh, full circle back uh, to where we are today, where IFs are really taking on this idea that they can delegate that responsibility to the CAS on a day-to-day -day basis. So if their athlete gets tested in competition or out of competition, and that uh, that that result that that test result runs through results management, and it gets to the point where a, a, a trier of fact, a judge, a, a jury needs to decide that case, it gets filed with the ADD and the ADD is there to act as an independent adjudicator. 
that's where we sit today. Uh, that's where we've been sitting for the last year in our new premises uh, in Lausanne, uh, separate and apart from the, the CAS uh, court office, as I think everybody or certainly all the listeners likely know. We have our own staff, our own arbitrators, uh, and our own sort of independent uh, brick and mortar for, for the project. Great. And the seat of the uh, panel is always in uh, Switzerland, correct? Is that right? So, so it's always... Yeah, that's correct. So again, we're we're very the legal seat is always in Switzerland, but I think it's important to remember that we have a multitude of offices across the world. Um, we've implemented a new uh, video conferencing system, which enables our hearings to be heard by video. So we have that touch point uh, and that ability to have hearings remotely throughout the world because again we're really talking about the global impact of doping in sport and providing independent adjudication for everybody uh, and yeah. so we want to be able to be accessible for everybody anywhere in the world we've got offices if we want to have an in-person hearing at different points in the world and we've got video conferencing now which is state-of-the-art and, and open for use for everybody that's great and you know, you know my personal view on that i think it's a good thing because the inconsistency you can't say but i know for a fact that there's just the inconsistencies worldwide to how athletes are treated uh, um in particular how athletes are treated uh normally because of the inequity the inequity in the the, the power um and resources um has, has not has been far from satisfactory on a global scale not to say independent states are doing it well but or in some certain federations have been doing it well but i know that on mass it's a problem just because of resources and expertise and some of the technical issues hence probably why there have been so many appeals at cas um and then the arbitrators list just to go over this for those people so there's a selected icas selector list of arbitrators and then they're broken down into uh three lists so we have the arbitrators who are eligible for nomination by the parties so and it can be a sole arbitrator or a panel is that correct that they can they can select the parties can select it right so the default uh, again we're in first instance so you still have a maintain you still have a right to appeal uh, so you're we're in first instance and we're trying to be streamlined we're trying to be uh, is streamlined and, and I, I i use the word quick but that implies that we're doing things short you know, cutting corners we're not but we're trying to be very efficient in in, in our duration and our in a way with the way in which we treat the case so we have a list of sole arbitrators or panel presidents that are essentially arbitrators who are were at one point part of our general membership but have a subspecialty in the area of doping um, we've uh, we don't want to classify them as experts it's probably not appropriate but they're certainly specialists in the area of anti-doping and so this group is a core group of arbitrators that we see not only as having that subspecialty um, but also that we are comfortable that they're free of conflict so it goes back to the idea of independence so these arbitrators can't be picked by institution or athletes um, so they're they're protected we often referred to as yeah. the protected list but the idea being is that they're 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 free of repeat nominations by one side or, or the other and they, these, these arbitrators can act as sole arbitrators in principle or panel presidents in instances of three member cases which we can get into uh, yeah and then 
Uh, and then there's just the other set, we'll come on to that next that after this point. And then there's just a, um, I did an interview with Jonathan Taylor. So if those are interested in sort of wider compliance issues, they can listen to the, the podcast or read it on Law and Sport. But there's a, uh, another list that are uh, dealing with uh, wider non-compliance issues, which is kind of a, right. uh, uh, a new uh, a new area that, that I said John does a great job on, who's the, the chair of the um, compliance committee for WADA. So if you're interested in that, we can you can go to that and I can put a link yeah. in so you, so you can check that out. And then, so let's talk about this. Um, so you've got the first instance hearing, and then am mm -hmm. I right that um, that they can, the parties though can select a three-person panel and that can be the uh, the sole arbitration with no right to appeal? Correct. So we 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 give the parties the option uh, of having a sole instance procedure, uh, one and done opportunity. So for for those athletes who say, look, I don't have the the financial means, the stamina to to take this and appeal. I want to have. To, I want to be able to select my arbitrator. Um, I want. I don't want. What I'll go back to the word quick. I don't want a quick hearing. I want to. I want to you know, move this through every corner that I have to. And in doing so, I'm willing to waive my right of appeal. Uh, the, the rules provide for the parties to opt into a three member panel, which essentially replaces the first instance aspects uh, of the procedure and makes it a, a sole or single instance procedure. Now, this is something that again, the parties have to opt into because they have a right of appeal. And so they're they're expressly waiving that right, save for a right to appeal to the Swiss Federal Tribunal. They're waiving their right to go to uh, the CAS Appeals Arbitration Division. Uh, they do that voluntarily. But also I think it's important to remind everybody that this right is a one that is really derived from the World Anti-Doping Code. Because in the code, parties can agree to bypass first instance and go to uh, the CAS Appeals Division as its sort of sole or final instance. So this is just more more a sort of reiteration of that rule in the code, which enables the parties to continue that route if they so choose. Yeah, and on the face of it, uh, it seems that that seems like a uh, a good option for some people, particularly if they, as you said, they need to be very thorough. And then the advisor should be in these cases anyway, yeah. if they're going to be very far. And I know that there's a um, there's always some concern that you know maybe they've they've won at the first instance and then uh, have to go for it all again at appeal, um, yeah. and that can be incredibly costly. So it seems to make sense um, as long as if uh, as always the caveat that you've always got um, you know good lawyers <laughs> to advise you so you don't mess it up, which is always you know another uh, is one of the problems I think in 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 the, this sort of specialist area of anti doping is that you know there are different levels. It's so technical now. There are so many uh, yeah. uh, let's say people with certain levels of experience and. Uh, and so many nuances to it that, that yeah. It, yeah, it's always a risk for, for different athletes over the world that they might hire a uh, criminal lawyer, for example, who's got no experience in antidoping, and then it's 50-50, right, whether or not they're going to do a good job or not, because, yeah, it depends on how, how bright they are or the resources they've got available to them. Um, yeah, so anyway, but I think that's it. Um, I'm saying stuff that you can't say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, Sean, it's, it's, um, it's something I think, I think about. I mean, I think... If, if I'm if I'm forecasting down the road and, and we do our job, the chance of success on appeal should be quite limited. Why? Because we think we've put in place 
yeah. a very strong group of arbitrators who, you know, legally are going to get it right. I mean, a lot of the appeals that we see, a lot of the appeals that WADA brings are because first instance tribunals just got it wrong. Why did they get it wrong? Because they're not generally specialists in the area of anti-doping. They're the the next up warmest body in, can you do this case? Sure. Uh, they're not paid arbitrators, they're volunteers, and they, you know, don't stay up to date or current on the trends, the jurisprudence, the law, the issues. So a lot of times they're maybe ruling in equity, which yeah. isn't really, uh, it's not a, it's not a, um, it's not a legal basis to decide a case in a doping anyway. So, yeah. you know, a lot of that work, WADA has to appeal those cases. The athlete who thinks he or she can compete now has found himself back in litigation, uh, found himself provisionally suspended, losing results that they've earned and trained for, just because sometimes the first instance panel just got it legally wrong. Um, hmm. My personal belief, and I, and I think, it, and, I, and I think I'm right, is that we'll get it right. We'll, we'll, you might not like the decision, um, but as far as from a legal perspective, it's going to be hard to overturn a lot of these cases because they're going to be legally right. And we can decide whether or not, you know, something should have been six months or, or nine months or, or, or 12 months or 24 months, but legally speaking, we're not going to get it wrong. It's in Well, I think on that point, I think one of the Something I've observed over the last 10 years in particular, that I think some of the issues have been masked in the anti-doping world, you know, because of the reason that um, trying to make sense of it all globally has been pretty difficult, um, you know, because of the, the, the inconsistent approaches, you know, how um, people are appointed to panels uh, at domestic level or international federation level, because of the, yeah. it so quickly, so rapidly becoming much more technical than it was when it first started out. All of those issues can come come together, and I think that, that what's happened is that people's attention hasn't necessarily been focused on, you know, uh, as much as it could be on the code and the processes that, that lead up to that. They they refocus on the cases that have been coming forward, and obviously they're important. And so hopefully, if there is these um, more legally sound, they say decisions, more consistency across the board, then if there are wider issues. And you know, as you said, people be unhappy with something. Then maybe the discussion will then start to trickle down onto the other areas. So get that part sorted, and then we can try and fix some of the other parts um, of the system. Or sometimes it's not fixing; it's just improving, right? Maybe mm -hmm. it's not broken, but you know, there's just uh, gotta be careful because sometimes I'm a bit too opinionated <laughs> on, the, on, on these issues, and it's not really fair because um, you know it's an evolving system. Um, and then, so that. So how how's it been received? And and the other thing, if for those aren't, aren't familiar, um, uh, there, there are so the delegation of powers from the IOC for international federations from the Olympic program, the uh, International Testing Authority, which is the bit that maybe if some people aren't necessarily that familiar with the International Testing Authority, maybe you can talk to that. Um, sure. Obviously, any other signatory to the wider code. So um, I'm going to make a note here so I don't forget what you've asked. Um, so first, the ITA. So uh, around the same time as these discussions were going on about the independence of adjudication, they're talking about the independence of results management. And so it, on that same sort of vein, the ITA was born. Um, they, they've done a very nice job of, of, of getting in the marketplace and providing that 
that ability for IFs to delegate that aspect of the of their requirements under the code to collect the samples, to test the samples, to report the samples, to engage with the athletes, uh, the TUE aspects uh, of results management. Um, I, I, I don't have the full uh, gamut of, of their work, but, but essentially as it concerns the EDD, those are the things that they're doing well. And those are what I refer to as sort of the first phase of results management. It's testing the samples in and out of competition. It's uh, it's reporting the samples, it's investigating the samples, and being liaising with scientists, figuring out if there's a discrepancy, uh, discussing settlements with the athlete, and, and that's all happening in phase one. And the ITA is doing a nice job of, of providing that resource for all federations, national federations, yeah. international federations, uh, and so they're, they're covering a much bigger spectrum. When it gets to the point in the ITA's discussion where they can't resolve a dispute with an athlete, the athlete just says, look, it wasn't me, it wasn't my sample, then it needs to get shipped into phase two, and phase two is where the CAS is, uh, the CAS ADD is. Phase two is where the independent adjudicatory body needs to decide that dispute. It can't be the same body that was collecting the sample and testing the sample. It has to be somebody completely separate or the call for independence is broken. The requirement for independence is broken. So the ITA, their role is in that phase one area where they're doing a lot of the results management obligations for the IFs and the NFs, and they're doing a very good job uh, of doing that. Um, we work hand in hand with them only in the sense that for many of their Olympic clients, they're also prosecuting the case on behalf of the IF against the athlete in that right. phase two. So we're engaging with them as prosecutor, if you will, on behalf of the IF or yeah, the IF, I guess, at this point in the ADD. Um, the next question is, how has this been received? I think it's been well received. I think we have right now uh, approximately 14 Olympic IFs, which are our, uh, our well, can use the word client. I wouldn't necessarily say they're our client, but we have got four Olympic, uh, 14, I'm sorry, 14 IFs who have delegated their adjudicatory responsibility to us. So it gives us a nice group of IFs that we're working with and doing that work for. I think we'll probably see maybe upwards of 20 this year. Uh, and this is, again, on the full-time permanent basis. So 365 days a year, uh, we're acting as that adjudicatory body for the, the IFs. You know, the IF process, they have to amend their statutes and rules and ADR to reflect the the delegation aspect of the rules to us. Some of that takes time. It takes reallocation of resources, but it's been well received. I think people are taking on warmly to the idea that they can no longer have a secretary general beyond the, the disciplinary tribunal deciding a doping case. One of your athletes. I mean, you know, the, the days of old are are, are no longer. I think there's other IFs who are very much stuck in, the, in their own ways and, you know, want to maintain that level of control and, you know, hopefully they'll eventually move away from uh, that, that line of thinking and will adopt the more, I think, universally accepted approach, which is that an independent body should, should decide these cases. If they delegated the responsibility, they could focus their attentions on more 
uh, important issues for their sport, yeah. is my opinion. Anyway, <laughs> right? You know, this is this is someone who runs a business. You want to delegate, or any organisation, but you want to delegate the stuff that you don't have to do. And if you don't have to do it, it's probably better yeah. that you delegate it. Particularly when they, not only that, it's better if you have the independence. Right, it's much better. For yeah, you. I can bring you along with me in the next pitch, and you can just. <laughs> I just said to my agent, you know, I mean, <laughs> no, that's exactly right. I mean, this is not this is not a business that 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 federation should be in. It shouldn't be in the, for for so many reasons. They shouldn't be in it, but primarily because this is not sport. I mean, this is yeah. this is something that they should be passing off and just focusing on the the growth and development of their sport in so many so many more positive ways and let 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 the experts or the specialists deal in this area so i, I agree, I agree and, and again yeah because you know we'll focus their attention if they're in you know this is something i brought up with john which was again if, you know not all federations have um previously anyway enacted the code in, in the way that they should have done right they haven't used the right wording and stuff like that and so again it highlights those issues more consistently rather than um i'm not sure what the word fudge is the right word whether or not they're, you know, they're finding a way to make it um, uh, consistent with what they want, as opposed to what the the, the, the overarching rules are. Um, so I think that's a, so, so that's a good thing. Then coming more broadly, then, so where do you sit in the wider uh, structure of CAS? Uh, you know, we've got ICAS independently, and then coming on to your work. Um, how long have you now been at? How long have you been at uh, CAS for? Over seven years. Wow. You know, that's where I keep worrying because where does the time go? Where does the time go? That's crazy. Um, seven years. And so when you started at CAS, what were you doing? Remind me, the, 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 the job title was as such. I know what you were doing, but maybe for others yeah. who were listening. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, just uh, so from a hierarchy perspective, we have an ICAS. I, just taking a step back here. So from a hierarchy perspective, we, ha we have the ICAS, which is essentially our board of directors. For, for at least North America, it would be considered our board, board of directors. Here, here it's um, the International Council. And in they act as a board would. They're, they're the oversight. Now, within the within the ICAS, we've got division presidents, which come out or emanate out of the ICAS. And the division presidents uh, are a president and a deputy president, and they oversee each of the divisions. So we have a, a president and a deputy president in the ordinary arbitration we have a president and a deputy in the appeals and we have a president and a deputy in the anti-doping division um, and so sort of going down the list and then and then you've got the CAS itself the court office with the secretary general who many of you know Matthew Reeb and so Matthew is, is obviously ultimately responsible for the day-to-day -day operations of the institution as a whole among, among other things um, and again Putting our money where our mouth is, uh, we we've tried to create the anti-doping division as truly an independent, uh, in, an independent division of the institution. So the interaction between the anti-doping division and the appeals division is very limited. Uh, it's only based on necessity, and the reason is because we want to create that wall. Uh, between the independent and between the institutions to show our independence mm -hmm. uh, and to do exactly what we're telling IFs to do, which is get that decision-making power away from uh, those associated to the to the uh, to the to the to the case. And because our cases are appealable to the appeals division, uh, 
you know, I've been tasked with running the division or heading the division so that I'm in basically overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of that division. And so the secretary general doesn't necessarily engage himself in the the day-to-day -day operations of the anti-doping division because he's overseeing the day-to-day -day operations in the appeals division. And because they essentially kind of interlock at one point, we want to make sure that there's two heads of each division uh, making decisions in each division uh, independent of the other. And yeah. that, again, that's that's part of our response to the call for independence. And we thought, or the ICAST thought it was important that we break up we broke up the responsibilities between the secretary general and myself as the managing council of uh, of the division, so that we don't have uh, we don't have overlap. And so, so when, so when you came in though to the organisation, you came in as a council, correct? Is that, I is did. That right? Yeah. So, can you talk about that evolution? Just because I know that a lot of people would be very interested in this, because uh, yeah. you know, you, you know, being an American, it was kind of unusual, I guess. You're bored, uh, right? Yeah, a bit bold to go to Switzerland. Um, so maybe you can give an insight into that. I know we're we're going to run short of time soon, but yeah, yeah. maybe we just quickly cover that. So again, so if we trace the hierarchy, we get to the court office. Prior to the ADD, the the court office was essentially made up of councils. So lawyers who were, you know, acted in sort of an administrative capacity, guidance, sort of akin to a law clerk to a judge, perhaps. But we we had a, sort of multiple facets to our job as quote unquote counsel to the cast and to the panels. Um, as I did that for a number of years, it was it was instrumental in the development of the the creation of the division on an ad hoc basis in Rio and then again in Pyeongchang uh, and in obviously in concert with the ICAST and the IFs and the IOC in developing the uh, the permanent division. I've then been tasked now to uh, move over into a sort of an administrative role, uh, more of a, a, a more sort of an administrative executive style role as the head of the division. So my actual day-to-day -day, uh, role as a council per se is becoming less and less. Of course, I still, uh, based on the sheer volume of cases, have uh, have a, a role in that process as council. Uh, to, to how, panels. How have you found yeah. the shift? So, so before you're, um, again, those people who are not necessarily familiar with the, 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 yeah. the lawyers working at CAS, obviously you're, you're helping with um, making sure the, the, uh, the evidence is, is provided for, the arbitrators have all the cases and all the yeah. other information they need, that the communications between the parties is running, so you're doing all that type of stuff. How is that? Exactly. How how was that? Um, how have you how have you um, found the shift? Are you, I presume you're enjoying it, but are you enjoying it? Like, is it? Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. I mean, again, for those who don't know, in the role of counsel is unique, and I think we're the only arbitral institution in the world that staffs uh, a panel or staffs a, a procedure with a counsel. In our role is everything from you know receiving and turning around uh, correspondence to the parties, issuing instructions on behalf of the division presidents or the panel. It's uh, walking hand in hand with the with the panels, uh, providing them with jurisprudence, providing them with insight into cases, other cases we do. One of the big aspects of the CAS is harmonization of our principles and jurisprudence. We want it we want it very clear in the law what happens if you do X, Y, or Z. The same as in doping. What happens if you take the substance? We want our jurisprudence to be very clear 
And so the role of counsel in many respects is to advise panels of what that line of thinking is and provide them with the tools necessary to take the proper decision so that they're not just ruling in equity, as I mentioned before, they're actually ruling based on law and in jurisprudence perspectives. So the role of counsel, again, it's, it's, it's really multiple faceted. We draft awards sometimes, we're engaged in the editing process of awards, um, we're involved in, in a lot of consultation with the panel along the way. Um, and so now I do maybe less of that uh, and more interactions with IFs, making sure that their rules are compliant with the World Anti-Doping Code in the sense that, you know, there, there's a, a clear line between their delegation and what we're doing. It's uh, it's addressing questions on the delegation. It's it's meeting with IFs and explaining the process, explaining the requirements under the new, uh, the new um, standards for results management that are coming down and how we can help, you know, we can help them fulfill their obligations and what services we can provide. It's uh, it's later on today, you know, working through uh, questions about the process of anti-doping and, and how procedures work for federations. So I, I like that. It's a good transition for me. I mean, like everybody else in the world, I mean, your career must evolve. It must take on new aspects and new challenges. And this has been a challenge that was was given to me by the ICAST that I warmly received. And and is had a, I've had a lot of fun with it. I mean, it's it's, it's awesome. been a great way to transition not only to Europe and then sort of build something from scratch that that I believe really services the community and is really a need. Uh, I could keep going on and on, but I won't. But but I I do truly believe that uh, that we provide a really good service for people uh, that's really needed. Hmm. Well, I know we've been friends for. Uh, for a long time now, and I know that that was your motivation. One of your motivations for coming over, right, was to to have a positive impact and uh, you know in, improve standards and you know, increase your knowledge base, and particularly in the international uh, arena, coming from a, a U.S. sports perspective. And then for, for and it's an interesting fact for those people who don't know is that you're an international lacrosse player as well, which I should have mentioned yeah. in the introduction. So you, well, <laughs> yeah. Um... Jeez. I guess I can't deny it. I am. Uh, you wouldn't. You would. It wouldn't appear by the look that I am. But I. I am. I. I. Uh, I, I. When I moved here, it was the one way I. I had to connect with people and become more assimilated with the culture and, and meet friends. And so I. I started actually just thinking I would coach. And so I jumped on coaching the national team and the national program for for two World Cups, and uh, and stayed on sort of an advisory role for for Swiss Lacrosse. And uh, when I turned 40, I, I decided that I had one more run in me and, and, and didn't miss, miss the locker room from an athlete's perspective. So I, I, uh, I committed myself to training and, and, and made the national team and, and competed for Switzerland in the last world championships this past year. And have, although verbally said I would retire after this, I'm not sure whether I will or won't, but but no, it's really been nice to, to be welcomed by 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 my uh, by my new adopted country and my teammates. Yeah. Do you know what's awesome about that story is that you know we're talking somewhat objectively about um, anti-doping and talking about the administration and support, but it's nice when people get to hear about the fact that even though we talk about these issues, there's other things going on in the background. We're actually uh, the, the reason why people love sports so much is for, and I just just did a podcast with Simon Rowe from SOAS, professor from on uh, sports diplomacy at SOAS, um, about this very issue about the social impact of sport. And it's nice to know that even as a lawyer, even in a sports um, administrative function, right, you still get value from participating in sport from a community aspect. It's quite 
it's quite a nice um, thing, I think, for people to hear because, as you know, as well as I do, in this sector, people think, how can I advance my career? How can I do these things? Sometimes they separate sort of real life from developing a career or, or, career or you know, yeah, in sports law or developing a, a client base. And the reality is that the two are so interlinked um, that you need to do both. So that's a, a, a lovely story, I think, to finish on. Now, because I'm subject to the world anti-doping code as an athlete, I have to be very careful about what I speak and know. So I'm living what I'm speaking. So I, I, that's true, actually. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, so I scored you, you, on, the, on the WADA uh, testing uh, platform at the World Championships, just so you know. Oh, great. Oh, well done. There you go. I'm glad because <laughs> that's the competitor in you, right? Exactly. <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Well, um, you know, my view on this anyway is that, that I, joking, as, well, not even joking aside, but I was saying that maybe that we should make sure all the administrators have to uh, obey by the rules as well. Because if they did, then we might see some rule changes because they'll start to know how uh, uh, laborious it can be at times and how difficult it can be at times to make sure you, you know, yeah. have it in front of mind. And I thought it would be, uh, you know, particularly I, I thought the same on recreational drugs policies as well in certain, yeah. in certain places and certain people. But no, um, Brent, it's a pleasure. Thank you always um, for your time yeah. and input into that. I hope this is useful for people having a better understanding of what you're doing, where the, where, where the cast is going. As you know, I think some of the um, new developments for CAS uh, absolutely welcomed and I think that uh, whilst there's been criticism in the past of independence and other issues mm -hmm. at CAS, and uh, I think that there's been a, a flurry of changes that have taken place which I think are really welcomed and really positive and I think particularly this drive towards um, greater independence and ensuring that independence yeah. is there is just it, it is, is really pleasing to hear and I think it will provide uh, value not only for the federations but particularly for for the athletes and those parties to the appeal so Thank you for taking the time to explain it. Wish you all the success and best of luck in the new role. Um, yeah, and hopefully we'll uh, meet again in person once uh, the current situation has, uh, has changed. <laughs> I look forward to getting out of my home office as fast as possible. So I, welcome the, I welcome the invitation anytime. Brilliant. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Sean. Take care. Bye. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for for today's show. But remember, for all your latest sports law needs, go to lawandsport.com, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes. And uh, most of all, if you enjoy what we do, please do tell people about it. We'd really appreciate it. And other than that, wherever you are, whatever time of day it is, in the part of the world you're in, I hope you have a fantastic day. And thanks so much for tuning in.